next verse is a sweet prayer. The psalmist writes, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So as we sing this next verse, be near me, Lord Jesus. It's good to have him near. Let's sing this. I can't be up here all by myself, so I need all the little kids to come. Let's sit on these stairs right here. Come on, yeah, come on. Have a seat right here. Yeah. Christmas is great, isn't it? Come on up here. Fill, fill them up. Some of them you have to sit higher. Some of you are going to have to sit on the floor. But we'll be right here. Just find a place and sit down. You can sit on the floor here if you need to. All right. All gathered in. This is so your parents can make sure that you're still here. Okay. All right. Wait. We are still missing a kid. Come on up here. Keenan, where's Keenan? Keenan, could you come up here? Bring your parents if you have to. <laughs> okay, now some of you guys are going to have to let Keenan have a place. It seems to be a common Christmas theme, right? Young couples with babies can't find a place to stay. All right, well, go ahead and sit down there somewhere. Watch out for the hay. And the lowing cattle. All right. Everybody look at Keenan. Can you wave, Keenan? Yeah. Sweet. Little boy. I want to read to you some scripture. Okay. This is from Luke chapter 1. All right. Or excuse me, chapter 2. It says, and you know this story. All right. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Everybody make a sheep sound. All right. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Woo. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For, oh, listen to this. For unto you is born this day. In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this is the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. That would be cool. And so we got a baby for an example. This isn't Joseph and this isn't Mary and this isn't Jesus. But kind of so you can look at him for... We got to figure out some stuff. See, God always, ever since He created people, He always wanted to talk to them and them to listen. He wanted this great relationship. He wanted to be always real close, like real close with everybody. Okay? And so people sinned and started disobeying God. And so to help them get close to Him, He sent some people called prophets, and these prophets would come and talk to them. And they would write things and they would say, get close to God, get close to God. All right. Get real close to God. Quit being disobedient and start being obedient and get close to God. Right. And prophets would do that. That very thing. They'd cry out and say, get close to God. All right. But the people would 
quit listening, and they would do their own stuff. And God did this over and over again for thousands of years. For thousands of years, he kept sending prophets, and then he stopped. He stopped. He didn't say anything to him for a whole year. For 10 years. God was silent for 100 years. For 200 years. For 300 years, God was silent. For for 400 years, God didn't say anything through a prophet to the people. And they kept being disobedient. And then he sent another prophet. And his name was John. And he started baptizing people. And he kept saying the same thing. Get close to God. Stop being disobedient. Start being obedient. And we call that repenting. And that's what John the baptizer was saying. Repent. And this is what he said. Because God is coming. God is coming. Now think about that. God has said nothing for hundreds of years. And then he sends a prophet and he says, God is coming. Get ready. Well, how big is God? Is God bigger than you? No? Yes, he is. He's bigger than you. It is bigger than space. So is God bigger than me? Is God bigger than this whole room? Is he bigger than a whole city of Casper? Is he bigger than a whole world? Yeah, he's huge. In fact, the Bible even says that the world, the earth, is what he puts his feet on to rest. So can you imagine if God in all his hugeness came? Because John the Baptist was saying, he's coming. If God came in all his hugeness and he put his foot on the earth, would that be scary? Yeah, that would scare us to death, right? And it should. But look over here at Kenan. This is how God came to us. Like a little baby. You know why? People like to get close to babies. They like to, when they're, when they're crying, they like to try to help them stop. When they're giggling, they want to be close to them so they can be part of it. And just like this, they want to be seen by babies. And they want to see the baby. And they want to touch the baby. And they want the baby to smile and be glad they're there. See, that's why God came as a baby. Because he wants us to get close to him. He wants us to know that he sees us. And he wants us to see him. He wants us to know when he's pleased by us. In fact, the angel came to Joseph, who was going to raise Jesus. And he said to him, you're going to call his name something special. You're going to call his name Emmanuel. Everybody say Emmanuel. And that means God with us. Everybody say, God with us. Now listen, it does not mean God is with us. Because if Jesus came to tell us God is with us, that'd be one thing. Jesus didn't come to tell us God is with us. And listen to this. Jesus came to be God with us. Think of that. He wants you to be close to him. He came as a baby, but then he grew up to be a kid like you. And then he grew up to be a teenager like some of your brothers and sisters. And then he grew up to be an adult like Hannah and Connor. And when he got to be an adult, he started preaching and he started saying, God's here. God's here. Get close to him. Call him father. Get close to him. Stop doing 
disobedient things. Start obeying. Get close to him. Because Jesus is God with us. Jesus is God's way to be with us and his way for us to be with him. Does that make sense? All right. Well, let's pray and then let's go back and sit down. God, thank you for being with us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the story of Christmas. Help us, God, to draw near to you, to get close to you, to see your pleasure, to hear your voice. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. stand and sing again together the first Noel.
This morning, this evening. and speak to us.
I love that word, hallelujah. It's something we ought to shout a little more often. Man, Christmas time is such a sweet time to just remember what Christ has done for us and, and to think about it. I mean, to think about who he is and to realize that he's worthy of worship, a word that we use pretty lightly sometimes. I mean, worship, to give him worth, more worth than we give ourselves. And I mean, he's worthy of our time, and he's worthy of our love, and he's worthy of our lives. And and I, you know, I hope that, that we'll contemplate that stuff in the busyness of our life that we run around and move from one thought to another and one place to another and one activity to another. To take some time and think about Christ is pretty powerful. I was thinking about it this afternoon and, you know, I've shared God's word many, many times and taught God's word many, many times and yet still... There's such beauty in spending time and thinking about Christ. There's such depth and such hope and such comfort. And, and I really pray that as we take a look at this little thought I'm going to share tonight, that we would be reminded of just his beauty and his worth and, and how much we need him. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by reading. Uh, Max has already read part of it, but it's, it's just central to what's going on when we think about Christmas. So Luke chapter 2, I'm going to read 1 through 20, but uh, bear with me. It says, when he had come back to, oh, excuse me, I'm in the wrong book. Let's get in the right book here. There we go. That will help. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people." For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about, about this child. And all who, who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so many thoughts about you and about our Savior Jesus just in these 20 verses. More thoughts, Lord, than I can wrap my mind around. More thoughts than I could share in a lifetime. They're glorious thoughts of your goodness your mercy, your patience, and your grace, thoughts of you fulfilling your promise, thoughts of you moving the world that your promises might be fulfilled, thoughts, Lord God, of hope, thoughts, Lord God, of the depth of your love, just thought after thought after thought. And I want to give you thanks for that. I ask that you would show us even more tonight of your goodness and your grace, and I give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I mean, this Christmas story, it's something that I read with my family every year and have as long as I can remember. Uh, before we do anything on Christmas morning, uh, we get together and we read this and we talk about Christ a little bit and talk about what we're thankful for and we'll do this tomorrow with my family. But it's this, it's this pretty interesting little passage just in general and I'm going to move on to a different one, but I, I want to talk about it in general. I mean, it begins with this account of this Roman emperor, right? Caesar Augustus, uh, an arrogant man, a man who would have considered himself to be a god stirring up the inhabited world by demanding a census from all the world. Most of us in here would have been incensed by that, offended by that, that he would put this demand on us just to see more of his glory, basically. And, and honestly, it would have been inconvenient because you would have had to leave and go to your hometown, wherever that was. And of course, that was quite difficult for, for Mary and Joseph because they were traveling from Nazareth in the north. It would have been quite a trip. They probably walked. I know most of the time we think about her on a donkey, but but they probably walked. If they did have a donkey, it's not the most comfortable thing for a pregnant woman, I'm assuming, to be on a donkey for any amount of time. And so it wouldn't have, been, wouldn't have been an easy trip for them. It would have been highly inconvenient. And if that weren't enough, when they get to Bethlehem, it's time for her to deliver. Not at home with her family, not at home with familiar friends. And if that weren't enough, there wasn't a place for them in the inn. And we kind of get the wrong impression here, like there was some, you know, Motel 6 there in Bethlehem, uh, that wasn't true. An inn would have simply been a place where maybe somebody opened their home for these people to come. And so there wasn't any place in Bethlehem that would have been suitable for a woman to have a baby because there was a census being taken. And so instead of that, they had to go out in what we typically call a barn, like the little picture here says. But, but being in Bethlehem a couple of times, it's pretty clear they would have been in a cave they would have been in a cave, caves just outside of Bethlehem. People that didn't have a place to stay would have driven their animals into the cave, and then they would have stayed on the outside of the cave so the animals didn't escape. And, and Mary, she would have had the baby on the backside of the animals, back where nobody could see her, a little privacy. But it wouldn't have been convenient. And she gives birth in this cave in Bethlehem, is exactly where the prophet Micah had declared the Messiah would be born. God had moved this all to take place. But then it would have been, would have been a very strange thing because even when the angels came and made this great declaration, they said that they, the shepherds would find this child lying in a manger. That'd be the sign for them to know that what the angels were saying was true. They're going to find the child laying in a manger and and even though the shepherds were simple men and some of the lowliest men in their community at that time, they would have known that kings aren't laid in, in hay. They would have known that, you know, the glorious ones of their day weren't born in a cave. I mean, quite honestly, it was pretty shocking this entrance that Christ makes into the world. It's not really something that you and I would consider. I mean, most of us would consider ourselves more important than to be cast outside into a cave where there's very little resources, very little comfort, very little care, let alone Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, that the angels had announced. And to make it simple, we see right off the bat that, that Jesus was born into poverty. It's just that simple. He was born poor. He was born lowly. I mean, we all know how this works. If Joseph had had any money, he'd have been able to buy his way into someplace far more comfortable than a cave. And so we see this kind of interesting entrance into the world of Christ being poor. But that was part of God's plan. I mean, there's some things that are shocking to us about the way this works, about who God is and how God loves us. And it's even more shocking about how Christ came to save us. It's, it's not a 
It's not a plan that you and I would make, and it's certainly not a plan that you and I would enjoy being a part of. And there's an interesting verse that speaks about this over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's verse 9, and it speaks about the depth of God's love in this poverty. And so let me, let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, and then share a few thoughts from it here in a minute. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Isn't that an interesting verse? Let me just read it again. I want you to listen to it again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That verse is full of incredible thoughts. I mean, the setting of this, the context of this verse is, is actually the Apostle Paul writing to this very wealthy Corinthian church and believers, encouraging them to take an offering for the believers over in Judea who have gone through a, a famine and they're starving and they're hungry. But he knows these Corinthian believers that though they have great wealth, they're kind of slow in actually giving. And so he's trying to encourage them to give and he, he compares what God has done for us through Christ Jesus. And I love how he begins that verse, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And man, there's not a person here tonight that I hope doesn't understand the grace of God. Let me give you a few definitions of grace. First, grace is a favor done without expectation of return. Grace is the absolutely free expression of loving kindness of God to men finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver. That's kind of a wordy little statement, but basically it's this free gift that the only reason that it's even given is to show how glorious and gracious God is. And then the more well-known definition of grace is the unearned and unmerited favor of God. And so the Apostle Paul writes, to those who know Christ, to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and been saved through, through Christ, he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know that God has chosen to give you something that you did not deserve. You know that God has chosen to give you something that you cannot repay. You know that your salvation, your forgiveness, the blessings of God are something that were unearned and unmerited. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many of us that are followers of Christ know that part. But he's not just talking about kind of general grace here. He's talking about the fact, and I love this, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Now isn't that interesting? Didn't we just talk about the fact that he was born into poverty? I mean, his mom and dad didn't have any money. Here he is being born in a cave, laid in a manger on hay. I mean, honestly... If you look at scriptures, there was never a time Jesus ever had really anything of, of money or of possessions or of property. Matter of fact, Matthew 8, 20 says, Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When was Jesus rich? Well, that's it's kind of a rich question because the truth of the matter is, is he was rich before he was born. Because before he was born, he was God. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, talking about Christ, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And what we learn from these words is that Jesus didn't come into existence at his birth in Bethlehem. He'd always been in existence. He'd always been God. He'd always been in every kind of blessing that you could imagine. I mean, he had all the wealth that you could imagine. And again, because we're Americans, we think of wealth in this monetary sense, or we think of wealth in this possession sense. But, 
But it wasn't that way. His wealth was not simply material as God. He had a position of wealth. Can you imagine? I mean, he had everything. Everything that was came into being through him. He had it all. He had every glory. Every glory. He was a center of worship in heaven. The angels would have saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty over and over and over and over. He would have been rich in satisfaction. He needed nothing. But there would have been more riches. He would have been rich in holiness. That's a concept that is almost hard to comprehend for us. Holiness. In that he'd never been tainted by sin. He'd never been impacted by death. He'd never been degraded. He'd never been ashamed. He knew nothing of what tears at our souls and tears at our being because of sin. He would have been rich in righteousness. He'd always been right. He'd been rich in his sovereignty. He'd never been limited. I mean, we could go on and on and talk about his riches, his wealth. I mean, Christ was rich beyond anything we could imagine. I mean, we kind of make a joke of it sometimes because, you know, the Bible says that in heaven the streets are made of gold. And, I mean, heaven is so glorious because God is there that the thing that we could make the most of on earth is just pavement. He's not concerned at all about material wealth because all material wealth is going to be destroyed. It's going to pass away. And many of the things that we've had in our little sticky fingers have done that already, haven't they? It's passed away. I mean, his wealth was untold. So then, what does it mean that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor? I mean, that's, it's simple if you want to look at him being born into poverty, but it's so much more than that. It certainly includes that. I mean, here's the Savior of the world. He lived and grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was an obscure little bitty town. It wasn't on a main road. It wasn't well known. I mean, there wasn't anything really from there that was going to be, you know, spoken well of. He was just obscure in poverty unknown to the world until he was 30 years old. But that's not where his poverty came from. You see, he went from being God to becoming a man for us. That's shocking. It's called the incarnation. God taking the form of a man. That made him poor. It was more than that. Not only would he become a man where he was limited, where he had emotions, where he could be impacted by the world and by sin, but he became so poor that he became sin on our behalf, laid down his life on the cross, and took the punishment for the sins that we deserved. From God, with no limits, from God in holiness, from God in complete satisfaction and contentment and righteousness to becoming our sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." We talk about sometimes this 
lowliness of Christ in the manger, and he certainly was lowly. He certainly had gone from all power to a helpless baby. But man, his poverty was so much more than that. And it was all for our sakes. I mean, I don't know that I can fully comprehend giving up all that he gave up. But I know this, to do that would have been sacrifice like I have never come close to offering. Nor could I, nor could you. He did it all for our sake. He did it all because he loves us. He did it all because he's gracious. I mean, you want to think about love? It's shocking to me how many people don't really even know what love is. They don't really know how to define love. They define it as an emotion, and it is, and they define it as a warm feeling, and it is, and I mean, they define it as a commitment sometimes, and it is, but you want to really know love? Look at the ones who give themselves for you. Who put themselves down for your good. Who serve you, who encourage you, who protect you, who persevere with you and endure with you. Those are the ones that love you. Sometimes it's hard for us, isn't it, to think about love. Sometimes the closest ones to us we find the most difficult to love. But I hope you'll look past that. See the ones that actually give and serve you and realize they love you because that's how we know Christ loves us. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we see this incredible truth that says, because of God's grace in Christ Jesus, though he was rich as God, needing nothing, having everything pure and holy and just, he became poor, taking the form of a man. Why? So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Talk about a shocking statement. And I know, I know, some people immediately go, oh, sweet, man, I'm going to have all the money in the world. That's certainly not what he's talking about. If that were true, then every Christian on earth would suddenly pop up and own all the properties, and that's not what God's about. God's about service, right, even from us. And thankfully, it's not about the cheap things of wealth that we chase after so much. I mean, quite honestly, if wealth was a result of somebody trusting Christ, then my brothers and sisters in India or China, or Congo, or Zambia, or Portugal, or some here in the United States. They didn't have food to eat. They didn't have places to live that have floors in them. They wouldn't be in danger of hunger, or sleepless nights, or fear. Man, Christ came to give us Riches that don't even compare to the trivial things, temporary things that we chase after. I mean, Christ came to make us rich in many of the ways that he himself had been rich. We just read in 2 Corinthians that we become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We, sinners, when we put our faith in Christ Jesus, we become the righteousness of God. That means we are now made acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. That is wealth untold. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I hope you memorize that verse. I hope you know that verse. What a powerful verse when we get inundated by sin and overwhelmed with guilt and then we look at Christ in us and go no no guilt because of what he did for us in his poverty 
tells us in John 17, 3, in Christ we receive eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You want wealth? Have a relationship with the living God, where he loves you and walks with you and promises to take care of you. As a matter of fact, you want wealth? It says in Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing, created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We get security. We get security. You want riches in this world? I could go on and on and on. But you want riches in this world? You have to realize that the path to riches was Christ's poverty, Christ's sacrifice, Christ's humility, Christ's love. I mean, it screams love. Who else would love us like this? And there is no one. There is no one. There is no one that could come close to loving us like Christ Jesus our Lord who laid down his glory for you and I. Man, if you are a follower of Christ here tonight, how thankful are you? How thankful are you? I mean, you should be beaming with thankfulness and worship should be pouring out of you. Some of us are gonna struggle with that pretty quick. Some of us have things to do tonight. Watching your time. Pastor Mike going to go long tonight. Right? I normally do. Probably won't tonight. But that won't let you off the hook. Because if you're going to throw your switch and turn off Christ and turn on the world, you're going to go from riches to poverty in a matter of moments. You have to realize that if you have Christ, you have all you need. And you can give him the glory for that no matter what circumstance you find yourself in. But if you don't know Christ here tonight, you too should be thankful. You should be thankful that Jesus came and became poor for you. And he gave his life for you because he loves you. And that whosoever will call upon the name of Jesus, he says, will be saved and will become rich in Christ. We have been given the greatest gift. <coughs> Excuse me. His name is Jesus Christ. And in him, all the wealth is found. In him, all the life is found. He's the only way. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word and the beauty of Christ and how he has loved us and what he has done for us. And as we celebrate this Christmas, his coming into this world for us, I pray, Lord God, that we would worship and give you glory and be thankful and not, Lord God, turn quickly to the things of poverty not get caught up in the things that don't last. Though we might be thankful, Lord, for your love and your salvation, for our families and our friends, for our church, for the good things. And I pray for those that have never trusted you, even now tonight might be the night that they turn to you by faith and become rich in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand as our praise team closes us in song.
draw near to him tonight as we go from this place. God bless you and Merry Christmas.